CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, you know, it strikes me that Yogi Berra's famous uh, line a number of years ago is appropriate to start the show today. Uh, Yogi famously said, it's deja vu all over again. And that's exactly what we have happening. We're back at the polls uh, this morning. The people who didn't vote early. Runoff election day is today. Um, Here in North Georgia, it is a wet chilly morning. There's supposed to be rain throughout a good part of the day. Um, I'll ask the panel as we get started today what kind of impact they think that might have on voters and who that might hurt or help. Um, So let's do this. Let's get right to the panel, start talking about the runoff election, and uh, let me get them introduced. It's a Tuesday, which means that my partner from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is their senior reporter, Tamar Hallerman. How are you, Tamar? Good morning, Bill. Trying to stay dry on this dreary, dreary day. Oh, it is another dreary day here. I'm very happy you are with us, though. Uh, Margaret Coker is here as well. She's the editor-in-chief of The Current, which uh, operates down on the uh, Georgia coast out of Savannah and brings you digital news about the state, about the region down across along the coast. Um, And we're awfully glad always to have you with us, Margaret. Thank you. Yeah, our team has been following the elections, of course, but we also have a couple of really um, blockbuster investigative pieces that we, one is published, other two will be coming um, later in December. So for any political junkie sick of the elections, come follow us on The Current. Well, when we get past the the election cycle and have more opportunities to do broader uh, shows, Uh, We should be talking to you about uh, looking at the investigations you've done down there. By the way, you can find The Current at thecurrentga.org if you look for it. Um, We're also joined today uh, by our friend Chuck Williams, longtime print reporter in Columbus, probably the best-known, highest-profile newsman down in that part of the state in Columbus, uh, now in television, WRBL-TV. Chuck? You've been a TV guy for quite a while now, actually. Four years. I'm now calling myself a TV journalist. That's, it's, it took four years, but I feel like a TV guy now. <laughs> well, thank you for being here today. And uh, joining the journalists on the panel, uh, professor of law at Georgia State University, Tanya Washington, is back with us today. Tanya, thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. I voted this morning, and... This is the follow-up. Well, this is a good way to start. Tell me about um, what time did you show up at your polling place? What kind of line was there? Did you happen to ask them how many people had voted before you got there? Give us whatever information you can. Yeah, so I voted in southeast Atlanta right across the street from old Turner Field Stadium. That's now Georgia State Stadium. And... Apparently at 7 o'clock, there were 100 folks in line. When I got there at 7.30, 
uh, there was no line. No line. Uh Um, I walked in. I voted. I took two stickers, and I was out. Um, my wife had a similar experience. We, we typically vote uh, early, but we both decided we wait until day of voting because it's really, it's really, there's a special pleasure in going to your own precinct, your own polling place, seeing people from your neighborhood. So um, this time we decided to wait. Uh, Janice says that uh, she got there at just after eight o'clock. At that point, there a hundred people had cast ballots in our precinct in DeKalb County. Uh, they told her that thirty people had been in line when uh, the polling place opened at seven a.m. Um, we do know from reporting by the Atlanta Journal Constitution uh, that uh, Gabriel Sterling is saying that poll uh, uh, voting is moving smoothly at all of the precincts that have reported in across the state said the lines have been something like seven minutes long, uh, which is pretty good. Um, so let me, before we move on to uh, other topics, anybody else uh, casting a ballot today? Are there, Margaret? Well, yeah, I was going to add on. Um, Gabriel Sterling at the top of the hour is estimating that there's been a quarter of a million votes cast today so far across Georgia. So that would be two hours after, after polls started. Okay, thank you. And Chuck Williams, uh, you had some reporting on this as yeah. well. I just uh, communicated with Nancy Boren. She's our director of elections down here. She said in the first hour, 45, there are 25 precincts open in Muskogee County. About 3,000 people cast their ballots in the first hour, 45. Give some context, roughly 30,000 were early vote cast early, and we have about one hundred and twenty one thousand active voters on the on the rolls here in Muskogee. Uh, all right, so let's dig into uh, uh, what all of this may, may mean. Um, we know tomorrow from the few polls that were conducted during this runoff period uh, that there was there was no poll that did not have the uh, uh, gap between. Warnock and Walker within the margin of error. They were all within the margin of error. That said, uh, Warnock did typically have a slight lead over Walker. Um, CNN, which uh, released the most recent poll uh, that has a lot of credibility, uh, had it at 52-48, which is just about within the margin of error there. So, um, and we also, to add to that, we know that early voting... Uh, suggest to us that Warnock must have done pretty well. Almost a third of the early voters were black voters, which uh, obviously um, is a good sign for him. And and we know that this means that Herschel Walker has really got to turn out his people at the polls today. Yes? Absolutely. And so we're going to be closely watching the lines today to see, um, especially in places like the North Atlanta suburbs and in North Georgia, which Herschel Walker needs to do well in if he's going to capture this seat from Raphael Warnock. 
Um, and the weather could play a factor in all of this, as our friend Jim Galloway posted on Twitter last night, reminding us that it was a rainy day in 2002 that uh, messed up Roy Barnes' reelection when it came to dampening black turnout and, and Sonny Perdue was able to sweep into office. And so the weather could be a factor, especially if lines are long. Voters might not want to stand and wait, especially if they perhaps weren't the most enthusiastic about supporting Herschel Walker. And you're absolutely right, Bill. Early turnout numbers look very good for Raphael Warnock. Um, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is that a Democrat needs the, the black turnout to make out about 30 percent of the electorate for an election. So if that holds, um, if it is something like 32, 33 percent, that's great news for Raphael Warnock, especially because black voters, 90 percent plus, tend to vote for the Democrat historically. So turnout today, crucial. Yeah, um, the uh, that's right. He was at 32 plus percent among black voters in early turnout. So, yes, that's a good sign for the Warnock people. But, Chuck, throughout the last couple of days, Raphael Warnock has been cautioning his supporters at events, do not believe this race is settled. This can still go either way um, because a lot of the reporting, including on this show yesterday, suggests that the momentum appears to be headed in Warnock's favor. That may be true, but Chuck, in, uh, let me ask you about that. And let me quote the, uh, a, a report from 538, which looked at all the polling and, and put out a piece today about where the race stands. They say five surveys from the more established pollsters, Emerson College, Insider Advantage, Survey USA, and others, all consistently put Warnock a few points ahead of Walker. That said, it wouldn't be shocking to see un an unexpectedly strong performance from either of the candidates. Other factors do agree with the polling that this race is tight, and Warnock's polling lead is still smaller than the average polling error in U.S. Senate races since 1998. That's interesting. And they conclude by saying, Warnock may be better positioned than Walker, but either candidate could still win. Chuck? I think you're right. I think right now it's, it's sort of like momentum be damned. I mean, the momentum will come at 7 o'clock tonight. When it's over and these polls start, these results start coming in, we'll have a better idea. But you talked about the Emerson College poll. That's the one that Next Star, which owns WRBL, is involved in. And that was 49-47 Warnock. But the interesting part was there in, in I hope I get this number right. Um, uh, they asked who you thought was going to win, and not who you're going, who you thought was win. I think that that was something like fifty-seven forty-three. So that poll tells you a little bit about what you're talking about, Bill. That you know more people think Warnock is going to win, but and today is the but. Yeah, that's really yeah. What they decide, said was, yes, we think this race is very close, but by a wide margin, most of the people polled felt that Warnock was going to win the race. And and Tanya, um, let me add to that: one in five of the people who said Warnock is going to win uh, were uh, were Walker uh, were Republicans, uh, which is also interesting. And Tanya, here's the other, here's another data point from um, the CNN poll which I'd like to get your take on. Uh, 
Walker Walker behind in that poll, 52-48, still a close race. But the 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 um question that caught my attention was one in which CNN essentially asked, who do you think is qualified to serve? Who's better qualified to serve in the U.S. Senate? And only 20-some percent of the people who responded said it was Herschel Walker. And yet, the top line has him in a virtual tie. What's going right. on there, Tanya? I mean, I think, I think people recognize that um, among those that are supporting Walker, they're not necessarily supporting him as an individual senator. They are supporting the control that that will give um, and the power that that will give the Republican Party. And so they're willing to overlook a lot of things with respect to him and his particular candidacy and his qualifications, which I think the discrepancy in those numbers makes clear. But they want to ensure that they um, at least have one more senator um, that is a guaranteed Republican vote on uh, legislative priorities for the party. And I, I don't think that that number is surprising to me. I mean, Warnock is incredibly qualified in terms of education, experience, expertise, and, you know, his ability to articulate around issues and policies. But, you know, this is about power, not about the person. Margaret, uh, you on the show just the other day, and by the way, thank you. You're coming back uh, on a repeat visit after just being here a few days ago, and we're grateful to you for doing that. Um, you you talked about the what you saw as a lack of uh, enthusiasm uh, down in uh, Savannah, and I assume Chatham County as well. Tell tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, the you know we we have a, a split GOP in Georgia, and I think this is part of of the um, the culmination of of what 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 that looks like over the last year of of this election cycle. You know, um, our political reporter Craig Nelson um, speaks a lot to the folks who consider themselves pro-Trump and part of the what we're calling the Trump wing of the state Republican Party, and even even with, within those ranks in Chatham County. There, there's not a whole lot of enthusiasm for this candidate. They like Herschel as a person, but they're also resigned to the fact that he could lose and are, are talking about with reasons why he, he might lose. And that was 10 days ago. So the enthusiasm gap is real. I think that the, you know, the structural weakness of the, of the grand old party in Georgia um, is, is why we see that um, momentum has been with Warnock over, over the last um, couple of, of weeks. And I don't know how, how the state GOP is, is going to reconcile all of that after Tuesday night. Um, you know, the, the state party is, is still run by, by a man who is one of Trump's uh, biggest supporters in the state, the governor who won uh, the most votes of, of any candidate on the ballot in November, doesn't doesn't stand with that wing very often. And so that's that's a big problem moving forward if you're um, a proud Republican. You have a story from Craig Nelson on the homepage of The Current uh, right now. And uh, with, within it, he talks about the the huge uh, uh, obstacles that Walker faces down your way to uh, catching up with Warnock. He points out in Chatham County, Warnock won 59.3% of the votes cast in the general election. Walker won 38.8%. He, 
So it's interesting to me, uh, given that gap, that apparently the Walker folks are making some effort uh, down there because because uh, Nelson points out that the campaigns of both candidates are going door to door to canvas and turn people out to the polls. But that's a large, large challenge for Walker in your neck of the woods. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we have seen um, a, a much more robust ground game um, from Republicans here in Chatham County specifically now since um, the, the general election is over and the runoff began. We also know that um, these legions of, of door knockers, uh, most of the legions of door knockers in Chatham County are getting paid for that work. So it's another I mean, that's that's great. Right. You need you need a, a, a really well-defined and, and smooth-running machine in order to bring people to the polls, but it speaks also to the enthusiasm gap, too. You know, Governor Kemp has a great ground game across Georgia. He has a great reputation. He's lent that apparatus uh, to Walker's campaign, but I haven't seen a whole lot of Governor Kemp um, other than one rally, one Ad. And then this morning, I just noticed on Twitter that Governor Kemp also is urging people to get out to vote for, for Herschel Walker. That itself isn't what I'd call a sustained, enthusiastic um, show of support for, for someone who, who could control the destinies of, of a lot of Georgians moving forward for the next six years. Tamar, like a lot of people who are uh, watching this race closely, people who are political journalists, I've been getting calls from friends in other states. I've been doing any number of, you know, interviews with the CNN uh, teams and stuff. And it's it's interesting to me that a lot of them seem to feel that uh, they have this illusion that there's no way Herschel Walker will be the next senator from Georgia because they can't comprehend, in the same way that none of us here in Georgia could comprehend that Tommy Tuberville in Alabama was going to end up as a United States senator there. Um, So I think that's interesting that people don't understand the dynamic going on in this state right now, which certainly gives Walker a chance to win this race. Yeah, I mean, a couple things on that. I think a lot of my friends living in different states who maybe don't track Georgia very closely after 2020, they think, oh, well, Georgia's a, a purple state, if not a, a blue state. Uh, but I remind people that for the last 20 years, Republicans have dominated statewide offices here, um, that this is an off-year election and a midterm year when uh, people don't tend to pay as much attention, although the, the early voting numbers have shown that turnout has been high. I think people also underestimate just how well-known Herschel Walker is and how beloved he was for his role in the 1980 UGA football team and how that gave him an instant cachet or cash with um, with Georgia, or sorry, Republican primary voters especially. Uh, he blew through that primary no problem at all. And so it's not just a blip that he's the nominee um, on the Republican side, and it, it has made him competitive. Uh, Chuck, uh, Greg Bluestein, in a piece posted on the AJC website, uh, gave us a good template for uh, uh, this part of our conversation. He asks uh, key questions that he says will shape the election today. And the first question is, how badly do Georgia Republicans want Walker to win? Um, and, And within that question, he says, the real question is whether the GOP base will turn out in big numbers for Walker whose history of erratic and violent behavior, as well as blunders on the campaign trail, have alienated many in the party. And then he quotes Jason Shepard, who's a former Cobb County Republican chair, 
who says, quote, your average Georgia Republican has voter has already moved on. Most Republicans knew Walker needed to win in November as he had too many missteps and too many negatives. He needed the rest of the ticket to pull him over the goal. I get that. He's now out there alone. Brian Kemp may have endorsed him, but Brian Kemp isn't on this ballot. No, he's not. You know, I had an interesting interview Thursday about lunchtime in the Pinkley Weekly parking lot in Columbus. I interviewed Ralph Reed. And it, it was quite a setting to interview Ralph Reed with the Pinkley, the Pinkley Weekly logo behind you. But one of the things he said, he said, Georgia is a battleground state. It is a competitive state. But he put an emphasis. It is still a Republican state. And, you know, and I would expect Ralph Reed to say that. Any of us would. But I think that speaks to what you're talking about. Are those Republicans, if this is truly a Republican state and the November election points to the fact, at least on the statewide constitutional office ticket, it is a Republican state, clearly a Republican state up and down the ballot. They didn't pull Herschel across. Is, what does this say? This is going to say a lot about Georgia Republicans today when we get these numbers. If Herschel Walker is the only Republican who doesn't win statewide, I think that's going to go more to what Mitch McConnell said a few months back, the candidate quality, than it is going to go to Georgia Republicans. Um, Chuck, as long as you mentioned Ralph Reed, I'm going to uh, I want to say something about a tweet that was directed at people at the AJC, at me, at Political Rewind, that I think is worthy of at least a moment. Um, it came from a very respected independent journalist in Georgia who said uh, he was surprised that people like us, that mainstream uh, reporting, had not been paying enough attention to the evangelical a push to get Herschel Walker over the line. And he specifically talked, of course, about Ralph Reed's efforts. Um, Chuck, evangelicals line up uh, for Herschel Walker the way they did for Donald Trump. But what's interesting about that is in the aftermath of uh, Trump's dinner with Nick Fuentes and Ye, in the aftermath of his saying that we should <laughs> the Constitution shouldn't apply when it comes to elections. Um, some evangelical leaders are moving away from Trump right now. We're seeing them quoted in various publications as cons- being concerned now. But, Chuck, we shouldn't forget that there's this huge evangelical movement that wants the most conservative people in office. One of the beauties of reporting in a small town like Columbus, and it is a small town, the world's largest cul-de-sac, but one of the beauties of reporting here is you know a lot of the people. And standing in that Piggly Wiggly parking lot last Thursday for the Walker rally, I saw a lot of people I knew to be Christian conservatives. There were two religions that you could see in that parking lot, Christian conservatives and Georgia football. Both of those religions were, I mean, there were people wearing 34 jerseys, Georgia hats, the run, Herschel run. I mean, the two religions were very apparent. And I know I'm probably in trouble for saying it like that, but those, but you, he's got a lot of support from the Georgia football crowd. And I think a lot of that, I mean, that's one of the reasons they continue to run the commercial with Coach Stewie. I'm convinced of that. But, you know, I don't know if, evangelicals are moving away from Trump. I mean, I can't imagine 
people not looking at what has happened the last week and a half down in Mar-a-Lago and saying, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? But I will tell you this. There were Christian conservatives and Georgia football fans in that rock, in that Piggly Wiggly parking lot Thursday. You know, Tanya, as long as we're talking about evangelicals for a minute, let's be careful here. There's a, a white evangelical church and there's a black evangelical church, and the two don't have many things in common, and it is the white evangelical church which is, has been uh, all for Trump and has been out there pushing hard in their churches for Herschel Walker. And I, I think the um, black evangelical uh, worshipers are looking at the behavior of the candidates and considering whether that behavior is consistent with their deeply held beliefs, and they're seeing some incongruence. Um, I think that's a generous characterization. And I think that is informing um, their lack of support uh, for the Republican candidate in this race. Okay, um, I've got to get to a break, and I, I, I wanted to just say a couple words about that, because, because I thought the tweet saying that none of us had spent enough time looking at the evangelicals uh, who were working so hard for Herschel was absolutely correct. And at least we got a couple minutes to mention it on the show today. Got a lot more to talk about, including Governor Kemp is now all in for Herschel Walker. Um, What's in it for him to be so supportive of Herschel? We'll talk about that and more after these messages. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Tanya Washington, Margaret Coker, Chuck Williams, and Tamar Hallerman join me on this Election Day edition of Political Rewind. Um, So, Tamar, I I thought uh, Michelle Cottle, a New York Times uh, opinion writer, wrote a really interesting piece about Brian Kemp over the weekend. And it's not as if uh, she was reporting things that we hadn't already been thinking about ourselves right here in Georgia. But essentially, she suggested that that Governor Kemp, after coming out of a significant victory over Stacey Abrams and, and having beaten back a challenge from David Perdue, the Trump-anointed candidate to, to try to dethrone him, uh, was in a position of power that could make him a major figure in national Republican politics. And Tamar, one of the points I thought she made that was so interesting was that Kemp's jumping in in this runoff election to endorse Herschel Walker, including a direct-to-camera commercial uh, saying voters should turn out for him, he can't lose. Because if Herschel Walker doesn't win this thing, nobody's going to blame it on Brian Kemp. It's Herschel Walker's many flaws that will uh, be thought of as the reason for that. And if Walker somehow pulls it off, he becomes even more of a kingmaker. It's an interesting place for Brian Kemp to be tomorrow. Yeah, he gets a couple advantages if, if Herschel Walker is able to win today. I mean, the first is a working partner in the Senate. 
I mean, I know that him and Walker have not been close uh, over the course of his campaign, but it is, of course, much easier for him to have a Republican partner in the Senate who more reflects his ideals on policy than having two Democrats. Second, he gets revenge for, uh, for Kelly Loeffler. Uh, his hand-picked uh, person for the Senate after Johnny Isaacson retired a couple years ago. Raphael Warnock defeated her after a very uh, expensive and bitter campaign in 2021. And having him lose, uh, I'm sure, is icing on the cake for Brian Kemp. And third, I mean, exactly like what that um, that op-ed in the, in the Times suggests, you know, Kemp feels like he's having a moment This on the up and up. He's the most popular Republican politician in Georgia. He very clearly and convincingly dispensed with Stacey Abrams. Um, and, and folks are coming to him. They see him as this kingmaker. He's starting to set up a network where he's going to be able to donate money to candidates around the country. Having, um, you know, helping Herschel Walker over the finish line would, of course, be a feather in his cap. Margaret, all of us are going to be watching with interest to see where these uh, 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 newfound uh, uh, power, the newfound power that, that Kemp has, is going to lead him in the future. Does he have an interest in becoming a United States senator when John Ossoff's term is up? Does he want to run uh, for a bigger office uh, than that? It's going to be interesting to watch how it develops, Margaret, now that he has a national pack that he can bring in money to do whatever he wants with. Yeah, in our in our newsletter uh, this morning, our political newsletter this morning, you know, we we have a um, a slice from USA Today, which is calling him the hot new name in GOP politics. So yeah, I mean, this is the, the time to strike while the iron is hot, as my grandmother used to say. I, and and the sky really is the limit for for Governor Camp. I don't know. I personally don't know what he wants to do. He's a he's a younger man. He is photogenic. He he embodies a lot of conservative values. He's he's a man of integrity, as we all saw in in 2020. So what else is on Governor Kemp's mind? Um, what's on his wife's mind? You know, he talks about his family a lot. So I'm sure there's going to be lots of discussions uh, that there haven't been already uh, with the Kemp family about what comes next. But um, but yes, there's. You know, as I was talking about earlier, in this rift in the Republican Party is real in Georgia. It's real across America. And Governor Kemp could really uh, go down in history, not just for um, shepherding our state through through the COVID pandemic and, and all the problems that we've seen about racial reckoning, racial inequality. He could also forge a path for a modern uh, Republican Party across America. Um, he and Jeff Duncan have a platform, and we'll see how they use it over the next couple of years. It'll be fascinating to watch. And again, it puts Georgia um, on the minds of not just those of us who live here, but those of us who, who are proud to call ourselves Americans. Chuck? You know, Governor Kemp may talk slow, but he is not in any way. He is one of the smartest, most focused politicians I've covered in three decades of doing this. I've never seen a politician more adept at staying on message. And you saw it in the primary when people, including former Senator Purdue, were trying to pull him in other directions and start fights he wasn't going to start. He stayed on message. He stayed on message against Stacey Abrams. And, you know, politics is a game of currency. There's no question in my mind, Governor Kemp and his family, 
I mean, Marty and the kids are part of everything they do. He does. It is, it's interesting to watch the family dynamic of this. They've built an incredible amount of currency here in Georgia. The question is, does he take that currency, like Margaret said, and starts with this pact and others and starts to spend that currency elsewhere to attract and grow his national brand? I mean, he's been on CNN at least two times since the general with pretty long interviews with Caitlin Collins. I mean, he's clearly expanding where he's going and who's seeing him. Tanya, I find it interesting to hear us, and I include myself in this, talk about Kemp the way we are. He, we've talked over and over on the show about what it's a disciplined campaign he ran, how he did, as Chuck just said, stay on message. So on one hand, as observers of how politicians run their campaigns, we can say, yes, uh, he did everything right. But as journalists, we can also say... Yes, but what that meant was that if we wanted to get to the bottom of important issues that the people of the state might care about, would he, for instance, in the next session of the General Assembly, push for an even more restrictive abortion law here? What more might he want to do about the proliferation of guns? Those were subjects that he was not going to talk with us about in from from what his real feelings were about that. He'd find ways to, uh, uh, to, to slice and dice those answers. So, so I want to be careful to make a distinction between saying, yep, great campaigner, not necessarily somebody who has always been open with us about what his next steps are in terms of policy and issues. And, and not just great campaigner, great politician, right? I mean, the, the Governor Kemp who ran this campaign had very different ads very different language than he had when he was running the first time around. And so um, I think to Chuck's point, he has uh, the capacity to pivot, to stay on messaging that is going to, um, you know, attract and, and sustain his voting base. And he threaded a difficult needle as an elected official because he wasn't standing with former President Trump, and he was you know, really courting um, the support of, of the voters who are Republicans and conservatives but are not MAGA Republicans and conservatives. And so I think, you know, he has, uh, you know, his, his star is on the rise. You can, you can see it. Um, I do hope that as he governs this term that he is going to be willing to kind of broaden the focus of the policies that he's advocating to include some of the people who feel marginalized by some of the positions that he's taken. Thank you uh, for that. All right, um, l- let's move on. Uh, and I want to, one more element about the Senate race uh, tomorrow uh, before we take on a couple of other subjects. Um, we're now seeing the staggering amounts of money tomorrow that have been poured in to this Senate race. Um, Open Secrets, uh, the website, uh, just put put up some figures. We have seen a total between uh, the Walker campaign, the Warnock campaign, and outside organizations, a total of $380.7 million raised for the campaigns. Warnock, $150.5 million. Walker, $58.3 million. And to add to that, among that, of that total, 
$52 million for Warnock was raised just between um, October 20th and November 16th to give him new money for the runoff. And during that same uh, period leading into the runoff, Walker, uh, $21 million. It, it, it's so, you know, Rick Dett loves to say on this show uh, tomorrow, um, that's more money than we've ever seen spent in any campaign before, and he can't even get his head around it as a guy who's been a political consultant for a long time. It's a good time to be a political consultant. It's a good time to be a TV station. Uh, Chuck might be able to attest to that. But, you know, WSB, um, I understand, created a, an additional newscast in the middle of the day to be able to accommodate more ads that they could air because they were raking in so much money. Um, so certainly a lucrative time to be in that world. I mean, that said, I think everyone is tired of all of the ads that this money has helped pay for. I think folks are excited to be able to turn on a television or a radio and not be bombarded by all of it. But it just goes to show how much Georgia has become a political battleground and how much folks from around the country are paying attention to what's going on here. That money could not have been raised only in Georgia. This is clearly a nationally watched race. Yeah. Margaret, uh, WSB-TV, Channel 2 in Atlanta, covers all of North Georgia, uh, was raised more money from commercials, from political ads uh, than any other station in the country in this campaign cycle. $86 million. And as Tamar said, to accommodate all the ad buys that were coming in, they had to add programming time. They call it inventory in the TV business. They were out of inventory, time to give to uh, campaigns that wanted to get on the air. So they expanded their newscasts to make it possible to air those ads. It's, uh, it's staggering. Well, right, and as a journalist, I'm... Um my first thought is I hope some of that money trickles down to fellow journalist salaries instead of going to shareholders or just to executives um, who run the news station. And, you know, I, I also um, want to just make a plug for the importance of, of local news. You know, it, in, in a time and place over the last, you know, year, last 10 years when journalism jobs are disappearing um, from mm. our map, you know, it is vitally important to have local journalists telling us um, both what is happening on the ground and holding our elected officials accountable, but then also being able to feed that message of what voters want and what communities want back to our elected officials. So um, kudos to WSB for, for adding uh, more news to, to their schedule. I'm not quite sure what those ratings look like, who's watching a newscast at noon, but one hopes as well that there was, uh, you know, someone who does not live in the metro Atlanta area. One hopes as well that there's a lot more community news also being aired and that money will be funneled to in-depth local news instead of to shareholders. Ah, uh, such an optimistic view, Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I mean, I don't know, as a TV journalist in Columbus, I'm not sure what to say about that. Um, I, <laughs> let me just say, I approve of Margaret's message. All right, let's let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and come back with more on today's Political Rewind. A quick programming note, uh, we're going to be doing two 
live political rewinds tomorrow. Uh, we'll be live as usual at 9 a.m., but rather than rerunning the 2 o'clock show, we'll be live again uh, because we don't know just how quickly all the ballots are going to come in. Will, in fact, the race be settled by the time we're on the air at 9, at nine in the morning? Uh, will, in fact, we be waiting to uh, f- see how the race shapes up throughout the late morning? So just to be safe, we'll be on the air twice live tomorrow and hope you'll all uh, join us uh, for that. Real quickly, uh, tomorrow you've been, as we've said a number of times, so great at covering the special grand jury in Fulton County. And uh, there's a story that popped up last week that because of all the runoff coverage we've done, we didn't really get to address, but it's worth a couple of minutes here. Uh, Judge Robert McBurney last week told the, um, uh, the those who have been targets of the grand jury, those people who were among the fake electors for Donald Trump, they had all decided on one attorney that they were going to use to defend him. And McBurney said they couldn't do that. Fill us in more on that. Sure. Well, 11 of the 16 fake electors uh, hired the same two lawyers to represent all of them jointly, uh, which is a kind of unusual arrangement. You don't really see lawyers representing, you know, even two or three witnesses or targets in an investigation, much less 11. And so the DA's office had asked for those uh, folks to be split up and that it created a wild conflict of interest. They argued because not all of those electors were similarly situated. Some of them were much more involved in the appointment of these fake electors. Many were party officials. Uh, one, David Schaefer, the chairman of the party. And so they, were, they wanted McBurney to break up that group. And as the legal experts I talked to have told me, that suggests that at some point, Uh, prosecutors might be trying to offer plea agreements to some of those electors in exchange for their testimony. So Mm. agree not to prosecute some of them or maybe to downgrade potential charges in exchange for them to slip and give them testimony uh, against some of maybe the bigger fish in that group. Um, And they argued that having the same two lawyers representing all of them made it very hard to do stuff like that. Um, Judge McBurney eventually weighed in and basically said that the lawyers had to pick between David Schaefer and then the other 10, because he argued that David Schaefer was kind of in a class of his own, that he was much more involved in selecting that slate of electors, that he'd been in contact with more of the folks involved in this investigation, and that because of that, he was differently situated. Now, these lawyers are protesting that arrangement. They say, all 11 of their clients have been informed about what all this means, and they think that it's kind of uh, harming folks and their constitutional right to be able to pick their lawyer. Um, and we'll see if McBurney buys that. But but in the meantime, that, that suggests that David Schaefer, in the eyes of this judge overseeing the grand jury, is a bigger fish, and potentially that could mean down the line uh, potentially legal consequences for him. That's exactly what I was thinking of, Tanya. Um, if he is the biggest fish in uh, this uh, uh, pond, uh, what Tamara points out is that uh, if they split up their legal defense teams, it is possible that uh, some of the smaller fries uh, could turn against David uh, Schaefer in exchange for some leniency in whatever might happen to them in the process. Yes, Tamara's exactly right. And I think the smaller fish... Um, need to be made aware of that by their lawyers, right? And if they have the same lawyer that's representing the big fish, that's not going to be communicated as effectively. Like, you don't want 
the, the finder of fact to be considering your guilt or innocence in the context of someone against whom there may be more evidence um, that establishes liability. And so it is in their, be in their best interest to have lawyers that will give them that kind of advice and strategic advice. One key detail I left out that is very much worth noting is we know that the Georgia Republican Party is paying at least some of the legal bills for these electors. So that kind of impacts how, how you should look at this. We don't know if they're paying all of the legal bills, but it's at least some. Now, David Schaefer, the chairman, is being represented by them and also several of his deputies, treasurers, um, secretaries for the party, that sort of thing. So it's, it's worth keeping that in mind as you read these stories. Um, Margaret, what, what all of this once again makes clear is that of all of the places in which uh, Donald Trump and his enablers uh, face real jeopardy, what's happening in Fulton County may be even more significant, well, maybe not more significant, but more actionable than anything happening at DOJ or the January 6th committee. There's real trouble for these people who are being investigated by the special grand jury here. Yeah, there is real trouble. And I think uh, because this, this, uh, the slow but, but determined and deliberate pace of, of this court case is going to show all of the people who, who might have, for different reasons, signed up to be on the, the so-called fake elector list. You know, it's been two years since that happened, right? And people um, who signed up might, might feel differently about, uh, about the, the Trump campaign, Trump himself. You know, actions speak a lot louder than words, things that have occurred just in the last two, uh, two weeks, let alone the last few years, could really affect um, how, how they're looking at, at what could be federal sentences, state sentences, and, and, you know, their livelihoods. There's a lot of, of um, people on that list that are small business owners. Are they really going to jeopardize their business futures um, and, and their own freedom for a, for a lost cause at this point? All right. Uh, we'll be watching that as it unfolds. Um, let me turn to one last subject. And we're not going to have as much time to talk about it today as I'd like. Um, but in fact, on Friday, we're going to be doing a show about a couple of very significant uh, cases that the United States Supreme Court is taking up this week. And um, uh, Tanya, let me turn to the one that they heard yesterday, a Colorado woman named Lori Smith, who, among other things, uh, offers web services uh, to a variety of people, including she has a, a service for uh, people who are planning to get married, to come to her and have her build out a, a website for them. She has gone to the court, and in a preemptive way, she has asked the Supreme Court, now that it's gotten up to them, uh, to, over, to overrule a Colorado law, uh, a public accommodation law in Colorado, which forbids <clears throat> her from refusing to create wedding websites for uh, people of the same sex who want to get married. And the court heard that case yesterday, and it's a significant case about the rights of same-sex couples. Absolutely. And it's a follow-up to the Baker's case um, out of the same state from several years ago. 
Um, and, and kind of the central issue is whether this Colorado public mm. accommodations anti-discrimination law is infringing on people's First Amendment rights, either their right to fr- the free exercise of religion or their right to free speech, um, when they are required to provide services that violate their personal beliefs or, as this, um, this web designer alleges, when it expresses um, endorsement of same-sex marriage in a way that is antithetical to her beliefs and it's compelling speech. That's the argument that she is making. This is going to have um, broad consequences across the nation, obviously, because it's a Supreme Court case, but also because it is going to, um, you kind of have a clash of, you know, constitutional rights to be free from discrimination and constitutional rights not to say things with which you disagree. And so I think that um, the, the court could have kind of punted on granting certiari for this case by saying there's no actual controversy here yet, but the fact that they decided to accept the case and hear the case, and in light of the hypotheticals that peppered the oral argument, as you described, Bill, I think it indicates how this very conservative-leaning majority on the court is likely to rule uh, in, this, in this matter. Well, I think that you just said something really important. There is no actual uh, uh, case that uh, nothing happened here. It's not like a gay couple came to her and said, build our website, and she refused. So it is all built on a hypothetical. It's a preemptive action. And because it was, the hypotheticals that the justices used got to a point of, I I hate to say it, but absurdity in some cases. Um, Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson's asked the hypothetical, could this mean that a, in a mall where Santa Claus is taking pictures, if they want to recreate scenes from It's a Wonderful Life, it would be perfectly legal, should the court rule in favor of the plaintiff in this, that the, mall, the Santa could only do pictures with white children. And, and uh, the lawyer uh, for the uh, for Laurie Smith said yes, it, it would mean that. But but then Justice Alito said, well, what would happen if a black Santa Claus had a young kid wearing a KKK robe come to sit on his lap? What would be the rights of the Santa Claus? I mean, it, Tanya, it got to an absurd level, and it 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 just I thought in some ways, uh, kind of demeaned the whole process. But I, but I think, Bill, that the hypotheticals are legitimate if there had been an actually an actual justiciable case, right? We don't have an actual controversy, but all of those questions are going to be raised by the decision that the court issues. All right, we're going to dig into that case. There's also an important case about uh, that's going to be argued tomorrow about whether states have preemptive rights over elections uh, mm-hmm. rather than the federal government's typical role. And we're going to do that on our show on uh, Friday. Um, we're completely out of time. Um, Chuck Williams, I know you're heading off to interview Raphael Warnock in a few minutes. We'll look forward to what he has to say to you. Tanya Washington, thank you so much. Uh, Margaret Coker, have a great election day down there in Savannah. And thank you for once again being with us today. Tamar Hellerman, 
Tuesdays are always a good day when I get to partner with you on the show. So we'll see you all tomorrow for two live shows at 9 and 2. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. If you haven't voted, get out to your polling place. Apparently, the lines aren't really too bad wherever you might be voting. Bye, everybody.